Have you ever witnessed or experienced very high emotional high that takes a downturn? Kind of like a kid at a birthday party that has had too much cake, too much fun, and then just melts down. This is the emotional direction that our scripture for today takes. We start with the very high, high of what we sometimes call a triumphal entry to an emotional low. Today is the day that in the church we call Palm Sunday. It is the day that we commemorate Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem. But we have four different accounts of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in the four different Gospels. The one that has the palms is the Gospel of John. In John, people wave palm branches. In Matthew and Mark, we get different branches. They aren't named as being palm branches. And then if you listened carefully to Luke, you might have noticed there are no palms in Luke. What we do have in common in all four is a spirit of enthusiasm, of excitement surrounding Jesus' entry into the holy city, this holy city of Jerusalem. According to the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus' ministry was drawing to a close, there came a time when he set his face towards Jerusalem. This means that he was now resolved to go to Jerusalem. He was still preaching and teaching and healing and feeding people, but he is doing this with the intentional direction and movement towards Jerusalem. And in Luke, he is, Jesus is walking this whole time on foot that he's been going all around hundreds of miles, on foot. But now, a few miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, he pauses and asks for a colt to ride the next few miles, the final miles, into the city. So he sends a couple of disciples ahead of him to another village to fetch a colt. And there is some conversation around this. How did Jesus know there was a cult there? Some people say it was foreknowledge. Some people say it was previously arranged with the owner. Some people say that there was just a place, a common place outside the town where animals were tied and people just knew about it. Luke doesn't tell us how Jesus knew that cult was there. He just tells us that Jesus sent two disciples ahead to get that colt and bring it to him. So they bring the colt to Jesus and they spread their cloaks on it. And they help Jesus onto it and then he's riding this colt. And as he's riding this colt, people are throwing their cloaks on the ground in front of him and there's this explosion of praise. People are flinging their cloaks and saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory 
in the highest heaven. So there's a couple things to notice here. One is that this is very unusual that Jesus, who has been walking this whole time, would decide to now ride the last few miles on a colt. And the second one is that this scripture from the book of Luke is full of biblical allusions, meaning that it is referring back to older texts, to texts in the Hebrew scriptures, specifically ones that have to do with royal anointings, that is, a time when someone becomes king. There's a few, and a few of them are, one, the cloaks come from 2 Kings with Jehu being anointed, and there's a mention of cloaks. And then this cult that is tied, there is a reference to a cult in Genesis 49 of a king who ties a cult to a vine. And now we have the untying of a cult. And another one is Psalm 118. There's a reference here with blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Is a paraphrasing of Psalm 118, which is a joyful praise of a psalm of praise of royal entry into the city. So these people that are flinging their cloaks and they're shouting the praises, they are behaving as if a new king is coming into the city. They are so excited a new king is coming into the city. But if we look at Jesus, at Jesus' behavior, is he behaving as a new king would? How we might expect a new king might. Luke tells us that Jesus, as he's coming on this colt and Jerusalem is before him, Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps and he says, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This you that Jesus uses as he's weeping is the city of Jerusalem. The whole city collectively. And the things are hidden from your eyes. This hidden from your eyes has something really interesting in it. In the Greek verb tense there. It's a tense that comes without time attached. So in English, we are used to generally all our verbs have past, present, future attached. We know what we're talking about. We know what time we're in. But in this particular Greek tense, the time only comes from the context of the words around it. So it is timeless in a way. 
And the person speaking gives the sense of time. So Jesus, looking down over the city, is saying something like, now, which can be translated as the way things are. But the way things are, Jerusalem, is that the things that make for peace are now and before and in the time to come, hidden from your eyes. Think of Jesus there, weeping over the whole city. Just gets me in my heart to think about that. Because Jesus sees clearly what others do not. Jesus sees the things that make for peace. It's possible also in this little section that comes after this where there's talking about the destruction of the city that there is some knowledge of the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come in 70 CE, 70 AD. So the city will be eventually destroyed. But when the things that make for peace are hidden from our eyes and we're not acting in peace, destruction is the natural end to that war. That is where it goes. And Jesus' words make me wonder how often we are blind to the things that make for peace. How often we continue to be blind to the things that make for peace. This feels to me, Jesus weeping, like a lament for what is and is to come. Up to this point, Jesus in his humanity has been preaching and teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near. He is healing and he is feeding and he is loving outcasts and sinners and people on the margins. When we review Jesus' ministry, this is consistent. These are the things that he does over and over and over again. And these are the things that make for peace. When Jesus is doing these things, the feeding and the healing. Everyone is really excited. They're really excited and they are really excited, especially when they think that he is coming to be a kingly hero. But when he enters Jerusalem, what does he do there? The same stuff again. 
He spends more time preaching and teaching and calling people to repentance and telling them to love one another and to love their enemies. And as he's doing this, the resounding answer across time is, we don't want that. We don't want these things that make for peace if it means that we have to give up our own sense of power and our own sense of wealth. The religious leaders in Jesus' time did not want this, these things that make for peace. The political leaders in the time of Jesus did not want these things that make for peace. Jesus' own disciples, Judas, betrays him. Peter denies him. These things that make for peace, our history bears out that we consistently reject them. No wonder Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I wonder, does he weep over us? I knew that I was preaching on this text and really wrestling with this idea of the things that make for peace. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm going to go on Sunday and I'm going to preach this sermon about the things that make for peace and how we're always missing them. And so then I'm desperate, <laughs> desperately reading the whole book of Luke, writing out okay, what, what's Jesus doing here and here and here? And it's over and over again, it's the same stuff. He's healing and he's teaching and he's feeding some people and he's saying some stuff. It's the same. And I thought, well, oh, okay, well, we know what it is. <laughs> Why are we blind to this? Why am I blind? Because I'm just as blind or possibly more blind than other people. So this week I was asking God to help me, to help me recognize something, some one thing that makes for peace. And in this same week, we were hosting a few young members of a Christian Ugandan children's choir, youth choir, some of them are teens. It's a, too long of a story to tell you exactly how we got hooked up with them, but the gist of it is that some neighbors of ours who attend the Cove, and many of you know the Cove's relationship with First, um, were a few years ago were hosting this choir, and we happened to meet a couple members and just got connected with them. And so now that they've come back, they asked, would we host again? And this choir is in part to help vulnerable children from Uganda and youth who would like to have an education but need sponsors. And so what they do is they travel to, as publicity to spread the word. And they come, they stay in people's houses, and they sing in churches and in schools. And so we hosted them last this week and a little while ago. And it's really fun 
and they came and they stayed with us. And I'm doing a lot of extra cooking. <laughs> and uh, we had three um, women that stayed with us. Eunice, who's in her 30s, the chaperone. And Grace, who's 19, and Blessing, who was about 12. And uh, so I'm doing a lot of the cooking. And then one night, Grace says, let me, can I just cook the pork for you? <laughs> I want to show you how we make our pork. And it was really good. <laughs> and, and we ate it all. The kids ate it all. We all ate. There were no leftovers. Um, and then we're, we talk and we just connect. And another night, our neighbors invited us over to go eat at their house. So we brought the people that we were hosting, and then our neighbors had three people that they were hosting. We ate together and shared, and then after the meal, the younger people went into the living room to play a game. So they played apples to apples, which is a very silly game. And my daughter went with them into the room, and they're playing apples to apples, and I'm hearing everybody laughing and chatting, and they're chatting both in English and in Luganda, and it's just a natural flow of conversation back and forth. And in that moment, I went, oh. Oh. This is a thing that makes for peace. This time together, eating and talking, just listening and getting to know one another, and my daughter in the room with people from the other side of the world who don't look like her, who have a different life experience, and yet this is normal. This is how it should be. And it is possible to love people from the other side of the world when you don't really even know them. I was so grateful to God in that time to have this time to be able to see that and know that. We're going into Holy Week. There is a temptation that I see sometimes for Holy Week. We go from this high of Palm Sunday, the Hosannas and the praise, to the very high high of Easter and our resurrection, and we love that. We love the Hosannas and we love the resurrection, and we miss the middle. And there is also a temptation, I think, for Christians in our faith to be a little triumphal in our faith as well. And singular. I'm saved. I know Jesus is my Savior. If you're Presbyterian, you came to church, you said your prayer of confession, or you sang it today. You know you're forgiven. Good. That is good. But as true as that is, Jesus weeps over the whole city of Jerusalem. His view is of all of the peoples. And he is weeping.
think our call as we're heading into Holy Week is to ask God to open our eyes to help us to recognize the things that make for peace. Ask God to help us have eyes to see where we are blind, where we, like the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time, are failing to recognize those things. The good news is that Easter is coming. We know it's coming. (laughs) Jesus shows us that way of peace. And no matter how much we struggle with it, we know Easter is coming. This week, every week, may God help us recognize the things that make for peace. Amen.